Our coverage of the Accuracy in Academia conference continues as author E. Michael Jones addresses modern literary criticism. His remarks last 50 minutes. Uh, as Peter said, I was, uh, received my Ph.D. in 1979 and then uh, was hired. I went to the MLA convention. Uh, didn't go to any of the conferences, though. Uh, went, uh, got a job, was hired at a, a little college, a little Catholic college called St. Mary's College across the street from Notre Dame out in Indiana. So it packed up and we moved out to Indiana. Uh, one year later, I got fired. Uh, which surprised me because I thought I was on a tenure-track position. I thought at least I'd have six years to get fired. Um, the reason I got fired was uh, I found a little bit disconcerting. Uh, it was because of my stand on abortion. The disconcerting part was that I was against abortion. And this was a Catholic college. And besides, uh, what about academic freedom? So all those things sort of rushed through my mind and I sort of tried to stammer this, stammer these things out as I was trying to express my consternation to the English department chairman. And she said, well, it's because you're an absolutist. And I thought, what does, what does that mean? Do I believe in the divine right of kings? <laughs> I didn't remember saying anything like this in one of my classes. Uh, but then she started talking about abortion, and then suddenly I realized what absolutism meant. It was mean, it meant taking the Catholic Church's position uh, against abortion at a Catholic college. It was harmful to my career trajectory. So, um, being an aspiring writer for just about my entire life, I decided, well, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to write a story, and then as soon as the story gets out, the world will immediately come to my support. And the students will put me on their shoulders and I'll be carried back into my office. It, di it didn't quite turn out that way, not to say that it turned out badly, but it didn't turn out that way. But I wrote an article about my experiences at St. Mary's. Now, it took, you know, writing articles, takes a while to write it, and then it takes a while to get it published. And so by the time it was coming around, it was the end of my stay at St. Mary's. And I had uh, formerly tried to ask the president of the college you know, to listen to my case and do something about it and got nowhere. And then suddenly, uh, within the last week or so of my stay at this place, there were all these notes appeared on my bulletin board, call the president, call the president. I went home and there were notes at home, call the president, call the president. So I, I assumed it was the president of the college. So I called the president and he said, well, I'd like to talk to you. So fine, I'll talk. So I walk into this office, beautiful office, wood paneling of the real variety. Uh, since St. Mary's was built with before, you know, before we had to go to the other kind. And uh, the president's name is Jack, and Jack is just the epitome of being a suave guy. He had been at uh, some uh, 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 Seven Sisters place before they hired him there. So Jack invites me in and he says, would you like a cookie? <laughs> and there's a plate full of cookies there. And I said, I said, no, thanks. And he, so he took out, he's, he's a little nervous. 
I get the sense he's nervous because he's got a cigar in one hand. He's not completely politically correct. He's got a cigar in one hand. He's got a lighter in the other. And he says to me, I understand you've written an article about St. Mary's. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, well, I'd like to see it. And he said, I said, fine, it'll be out next week. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I mean before it comes out. And I said, well, I'm thinking, you know, you, you didn't have the time of day for me for six months, and now I'm such a popular guy. The door is open, by the way, to the outside office. And if you, you have a sense of what it's like to be in the president's office of a, a young lady's Catholic college, you know, uh, propriety. You don't, nobody has a tattoo on, you know, this is not typical Indiana. So anyway... He says to me, no, no, I want to see this thing right away. And I said, well, Jack, why should I show you this article? I said, he said, in the interest of fairness and objectivity. And I said, Jack, when was this place ever fair or objective with me? And he said, he said, well, we think you're going to distort things in the article. And I said, Jack, all I'm going to do is tell the truth. At that point, he exploded. Remember, the door is open. All the secretaries are out there. He says to me, truth, with the cigar in one hand and the lighter flicking in the other, truth, bullshit, truth, bullshit. He's screaming this at the top of his lungs. I mean, even Punch's pilot didn't go that far. <laughs> at least Punch's pilot asked a question, you know. Now, I remember thinking at that time, why is this guy going on this way? What did I do to deserve this? You know, all I said was I was going to tell the truth. Well, I learned then that the truth is a very sensitive topic uh, for a lot of different reasons. Now, I didn't understand quite why it should be such a sensitive topic in this guy's life, but I found out later on. I mean, the question, I left the office thinking, why does he hate the truth? Why does he think that the truth is bullshit? Why is he making this, this type of correlation? And I kept that in my mind for a number of, it, it, it didn't, it's still in my mind, but I kept it in my mind for a number of years, and then suddenly I heard that Jack was leaving. He, he had resigned suddenly. Now, the reason you read in the paper was not really the reason that everyone else knew. The reason he resigned suddenly was because he was having an affair with one of the deans and the people in the college found out about it, and the news was just about to get out, so he left before it would happen. Now, I think that this was a revelation to me. I think that what I learned here is that people who are sensitive to about the truth are sensitive for very particular reasons. He later went on uh, to do nothing in particular, and then he got cancer, and now he's dead. Okay, so he knows about the truth now in a way that may not be pleasant. We don't know, but it may not be. And I think that's a reason, the reason a lot of people feel the same way about the truth. So I sort of left, I sort of shook the dust, dust off my feet and I walked away. And I, I had two projects in mind. I thought, something happened to Catholic education because I shouldn't have been fired for opposing abortion, okay? So I decided to find out what happened to Catholic education. And I also tried to find out, let's, let's figure out the difference. There seems to be a connection between the way people live and the way people think. Now, the first uh, question, I think I, I answered 
in a book which you can get out there called John Cardinal Crowell and the Cultural Revolution, which is basically about how the Catholic Church got subverted during the Cultural Revolution of the 60s. That's a long story, and I'm not going to go into it now. The other question is the relationship between uh, truth and action. I started, to, I started a magazine, started uh, Fidelity, which dealt mostly with the Catholic stuff. But during this period, I started reading biographies of people that I had known, uh, been taught as an undergraduate. The big difference between when I was an undergraduate and when Adam, my son, was an undergraduate is that people believed modernity in the 60s. They lived it and they believed it and they believed all those stuff as the God's honest truth. And by the time Adam got to Harvard, they had to enforce that. And that's the essence of what political correctness is. So I started reading biographies. I read a biography of Sartre and I remember thinking, gosh, I used to think I was awfully stupid because I never understood Sartre until I read the biography and learned that he had a habit of taking dexedrine and writing for 18 hours at a stretch on dexedrine. And suddenly I thought, well, maybe I wasn't so stupid after all. Maybe it was his drugs and not my stupidity that was the cause of this. In other words, the lives of these people seem to me to provide an explication of their texts in a way that the text did not themselves. And so I, 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 I became involved in the Margaret Mead controversy, which I deal with in Degenerate Moderns. Margaret Mead basically made a career out of saying that Samoans don't take adultery seriously. She did that in a book called Coming of Age in Samoa. In the early 80s, an Australian by the name of Derek Freeman published a book called Margaret Mead in Samoa in which he proved pretty convincingly that Samoans, as a matter of fact, do take adultery seriously like the rest of the world. In other words, if you come home and your wife is in bed with another guy, he doesn't just go off under a palm tree and uh, find someone else. The police reports were full of guys with broken jaws and stab wounds and the whole nine yards when it comes to the typical reaction to adultery. So where did, where did Margaret Mead get this idea then? Well, lo and behold, one year after Derek Freeman's book came out, the biography of Margaret Mead came out. And lo and behold, guess what Margaret Mead was doing during the summer of 1926? She was committing adultery. So suddenly, uh, I had a revelation here, okay? That basically, what we're talking about here is projection. This was Margaret Mead's guilty conscience, and she made a career out of it because a lot of other people had the same guilty conscience. All the liberated ladies at Barnard in the 1920s, loved Margaret Mead's book because it said, in the state of nature, there's no guilt, and you can commit adultery, and there's no problem attached to it. I found that just about every modern thinker of the type I had studied in, uh, as an undergraduate had this sort of skeleton in his closet, and I tried as a result of that to come up with some type of formulation of this idea. What were we talking about here? And it seems to me that in this in keeping with this conference, you have two options in life, at least intellectual options. You can either conform your desires to the truth, or you can conform the truth to your desires. And it seems to me that just about every modern thinker that I came up with now that the biographies were coming out had chosen the latter course. They had decided to suppress the truth because it didn't conform to their desires. So Sigmund Freud would say, all men 
have a desire to sleep with their mothers and their sisters. All men, Sigmund? I found that hard to, hard to swallow when I first heard it. And then suddenly the story of Freud's relationship with his sister came out. And suddenly this became somewhat more exp- understandable. I'm saying the thesis of the book is that modernity is modernized, I'm sorry, modernity is rationalized sexual misbehavior, and we now live at the tail end of modernity, and so the university system is nothing more than an elaborate rationalization of sexual misbehavior. Now, that's a big statement. I know. I'm famous for big statements. But then I found myself thinking, well, what about my experience as a graduate student? This came to my mind a little while ago when I saw an article in the New York Times on the attack on Western culture. Remember, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western culture's got to go. Jesse Jackson chanted that at Berkeley or one of those places in California. That never made much sense to me. But then again, lots of things in life don't make sense. So then I read on in the article, and lo and behold, I knew some of these professors. As a matter of fact, some of these people taught me. As a matter of fact, one of them taught me Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I remembered. Now she, she's not teaching Nathaniel Hawthorne anymore. Now she's a superstar, and she teaches Jacqueline Suzanne novels which no one knows about, and you're probably better off not knowing about them. But in the 60s, everybody knew about Jacqueline Suzanne novels like The Valley of the Dolls. Now, Jacqueline Suzanne, as far as I know, did not come from outer Mongolia, so why this is not Western culture, too, I don't know. But anyway, Jane, the teacher, the big proponent of multi-culti studies, is now teaching Valley of the Dolls. But I remember when she taught The Scarlet Letter. And I remember a class in which a friend of mine was sitting there. And we were going on and on in a typical sophisticated fashion about everything but the real issue. And if you haven't figured it out, the real issue in the Scarlet Letter is adultery, isn't it? But the real issue beyond that is, well, is it right or is it wrong? And this is exactly what my friend said. She blurted out in the middle of the class, Well, isn't adultery wrong? Now think for a minute of my hip professor and the bind that she is in right now. Okay? What does she say? Seems there are two options. Yes or no. Okay? Yes, adultery is wrong. But then you're considered terminally unhip. And on top of that, you've just condemned the mores of everybody else in the English department. (laughs) The heterosexuals, anyway. So what about no? No, adultery is not wrong. Well, in a sense, that's even worse. Because then what's Nathaniel Hawthorne writing about? Having books overdue at the library? You step up on the scaffold. I can't take it anymore. And you rip it open and there's this overdue book underneath your shirt. I can't take it anymore. Is that the type of thing that really drives you up onto the scaffold in the middle of the night? No. So what we have here is a situation where you answer no, and then suddenly it's all of literature is nothing but an exercise in triviality. It's trivial. Is it a big deal? Is adultery a big deal? 
Did Homer think adultery was a big deal? In other words, if you say no, then you've condemned all of literature and say, hey, it's, it's stupid. Here's this guy, Nathaniel Hawthorne, writing about some guy who was just neurotic because he couldn't accept adultery. So, so she didn't, she didn't, she, she being the clever career uh, person that she was, she said, neither yes nor, the, nor, nor no, as there, the passage in the Bible that talks about people like that. She said, adultery is wrong is Hawthorne's truth. Hawthorne's truth? Does he have somehow have sexual relations different than everyone else in the world? Does he have different sexual equipment than everyone else in the world? How else could it, how could it be then just Hawthorne's truth? Well, it can't be Hawthorne's truth. It's got to be the truth or it's got to be ridiculous. And they're the only options available. And that is the problem, of course, with literature studies. They can't face up to certain things which are true and certain things which are wrong, right and wrong, which are the basis of all literature. If you can't say that adultery is wrong, you can't teach the literature. And pretty much literature is nothing but descriptions of adultery, more or less, isn't it? I mean, Hippolytus... Uh, Joseph in the Bible, Madame Bovary, uh, you know, you go through it. Anna Karenina. Adultery has a pretty long history here, okay? In other words, you've just killed Western culture and you've killed literature. Now, why would you want to do this? Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Means and Ends in which he gives some indication. He said, my generation, meaning the English generation in the 30s, the people who all became communists and from which the blunts and the, the spies uh, came from. He said, my generation believed in meaninglessness, but we believed in meaninglessness for a very special reason, because we were all interested in sexual liberation. In other words, if it was meaningless, then there was no guilt attached to it. In other words, we, were kill we are ready to kill meaning to let our guilty consciences off the hook. And I'm saying... That he, the only thing that's different between Huxley and all the people who came after him is that Huxley was honest enough to admit it. Because I think that this gets to the heart of what we're talking about when we're talking about truth on campus. The heart of what we're talking about here is that there is a connection between what you do and what you think. As a matter of fact, I think that the essence of the Western tradition is that understanding that that if you want to talk about it in its most metaphysical terms we can we strive to know what is true and we strive to achieve what is good but that those two things are ultimately united at the end that the true and the good in a sense are one and the same thing and that if you violate one you violate the other if you turn your back on one if you decide that I do not want the good then you can't want the true either. We have historical documents. I'm waiting to meet uh, Professor Vasanyi for the first time. We've corresponded. Uh, an aria in Tristan und Isolde. O sink hernieder, nach der Liebe. Sink down, O night of love. Why are you interested in the dark here? Well, because you're committing adultery. That's what Tristan and Isolde is about. In other words, we have the same sort of pattern repeated again 
as a cultural project. If you don't know how important Tristan und Isolde was for sexual liberation in Germany during the 19th century, Germany and beyond, then you don't understand one of the major facets of cultural revolution. It was so important to Friedrich Nietzsche that he made a sort of permanent commitment to it by getting infected with syphilis and then writing a philosophy based on it. And if you don't know how important Nietzsche is to our academic professors, then you don't understand anything. You should know that. But what we're talking about here is the deliberate extinction, the deliberate extinction of the truth, the deliberate darkening of the mind. Now, the classic authors knew that lust had something to do with this. They would say that lust darkens the mind. In other words, passion. The mind is like a window. And if you don't perceive, if it's not clean, you can't see through it. In other words, you can't get to reality through the mind. The mind, as, as conveyed in academe, and my favorite uh, example of it is it's like driving on a bus at night with the lights on. Did you ever, were you ever on a bus at night with the lights on? Do you know what you see when you look out the window? You see yourself. That's what the window, the mind, has become to academe. It has become nothing more than the, the, the promptings of a conscience that won't go away. What I'm proposing is something else, a different idea. What I'm proposing is, I think, consonant with the wisdom of the West. The way we think depends on the kind of person we are. We can only apprehend the truth to the extent that we live the truth. And living the truth means conforming our actions to the truth. And conforming our actions to the truth means living according to the moral law, which is the truth about human nature. If you choose that option, you have chosen one of the options I described at the beginning. You have taken your desires, we all have desires, and you have subordinated these desires to the moral law. In other words, the truth is the most important thing. What we have in this culture is the exact opposite. We have desire, the omnipotent desire. We have desire without bound. We have desire that becomes the ruler of the truth. We have people, in other words, who are teaching us, who are teaching our children, we're not teaching us anymore, people who are teaching our children who have made the decision that their desire is the most important thing in the world. Now, how do you deal with people like that? You deal with them by understanding what's going on, first of all. That what we're involved in is a cultural revolution. What we're involved in is Kulturkampf. What we're involved in is not what the communists were involved in, in, in their crude way. We don't send people, we don't send tanks into the street to control people. What we do is control the flow of information and we control the educational system. And, as a, and, and even more importantly than that, what is the purpose the goal of the control of the educational system, the ultimate goal, is the control of your sexual life. That, it seems to me, is the genius of this system. If you can control, if we can determine from an early age how you will behave sexually, we will determine how you behave.
We don't have to put a gun to your head. We will simply know that you will behave in certain predictable fashions. And this, why, this is why I think the educational system is wedded to the propagation of vice, because vice means control. If you are involved in a vice, you are very easily controlled. I was in San Francisco as a reporter uh, when the Pope arrived. And I was, there were two streets. There was sort of the Catholic Hispanic street, and then there was the homosexual street. And I would you know, go back and forth to see what was going on. And I happened to be on the homosexual street when the Pope arrived. Now, the Pope was way, way off there. You couldn't see anything. I couldn't see anything. But suddenly I felt this roar go up from the crowd. And I thought, well, the Pope has arrived. And I looked at the man next to me. And he, his, his, his neck had swollen up. It looked bigger than his head. And the veins were bulging in his neck. And he was, his face was contorted in, with rage. And I thought at that point, what did this guy ever do to you? He probably doesn't even know who you are. He didn't borrow money from you and then not pay it back. What did he do? And I think the only answer is that he stood up for the truth. He stood up for the truth about human sexuality, that, it, it, that there is a purpose and that homosexual, homosexual activity is a defeat of a conscious violation of that purpose. And this man's guilty conscience would not let him rest because the guilty conscience never lets you rest. It just doesn't die. I'm doing a, a book now on Frankenstein, and I think that's the essence of Frankenstein. The, that monster is the sexual license that you let onto the world. That monster is your unrepented sins, and it will never die. We live in a culture that creates monsters and then, and then looks on in shock when the monsters do what monsters do. In this sense, we live in a culture that goes back to a warning all the way at the beginning of our culture. I'm thinking of a play by Euripides called The Bacchae. If you're familiar with that play, it's about the women have left their looms, so it's kind of a play about feminism. The women have all left their looms. They're off on the mountainside dancing naked, watching the Asiatic, or worshiping the Asiatic god Dionysus. And Pentheus, who is an intelligent man, he's the king of Thebes, he realizes that there is, this is not a private issue when women take off their clothes and dance on the mountain. There is social order involved in this thing, and he as the king is responsible for social order, and so he has to do something. He has to apprehend Dionysus, which is, of course, what he does. It's easy to capture Dionysus. He brings him into his throne room, and Dionysus says, your armies have no power over me, and the king kind of smirks. And then Dionysus shows the king why his armies have no power. He says to him, would you like to um, see the women dancing naked on the mountainside? In other words, he appeals to the king's prurient interest. And the king, as a matter of fact, would like to see the women dancing naked on the mountainside. And so Dionysus says, well, I'll take you there, but you've got to do one thing. You have to put on a dress. So the king puts on a dress and he marches through the town and sort of ruins his authority by walking around like this. The gender studies people would have a field day with this one. 
goes up to the mountain and Dionysus points to a tree and says, if you climb that tree, you'll get a better view. So Pentheus climbs the tree and at this point, this reminded me of a scene at Harvard when Adam was there and the women were, were shouting yes is yes and no is no. I thought the Corabantic feminists were coming to get me. But uh, Dionysus, or Pentheus climbs the tree, the women see him and then they rush over and they bring him down and they tear him limb from limb. And the final scene of the play Pentheus's grandfather is standing there and he says to this woman, what do you see? Now the woman is sitting there with Pentheus's head in her lap. The woman happens to be Pentheus's mother. But she's still under this kind of feminist Dionysian intoxication. She, she says, it's a trophy. It's a lion's head. It's something great. And uh, her father says, look again. And then the intoxication starts to wear off. And she looks down and she realizes it's the, the head of her son. And she says, great line, she says, he says, what do you see? And she says, I see horror. I see suffering. I see grief. That's what we see right now. That's what academia is all about right now. But on the other side, of the coin, there is the sense that maybe the intoxication is wearing off. As, as Jeff Satinover talked about, there are plenty of people out there who know that it's not liberation. That there's only one form of liberation for a rational animal, and that is living according to the tenets of reason. That's our hope. That's the hope for this conference, and that's the hope for this organization. Thanks very much. Lots of luck. Yeah, lots of luck, really. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when you walk into the library there, you're, of course, met with a quote that's been brought up a couple times already from John's Gospel, which says, you should know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I'm curious, what's happened to Catholic education that when all the Ivy League schools and all the public institutions are you know, moral relativists and intellectual relativists, why isn't it that Catholic universities can't be the one kind of light on a hill that still adheres to some kind of universal truth? All right, this is exactly the question that went through my mind, and eventually I did the research and found out why it is. Uh, it begins in the early 60s. Um, the Rockefellers wanted to uh, expand population control into the government, and they wanted to legalize contraception in this country. It was still le illegal in places like Griswold, uh, in Connecticut, and Griswold versus Connecticut was this, uh, 65 made it legal. Uh, they, he felt that the Vatican Council offered them an opportunity with the church to influence the church uh, in a way that they hadn't had before. And so he went to uh, uh, Father Hesburgh at Notre Dame. He sponsored a series of secret conferences on contraception, which is the thin end of the wedge. I mean, if, if you want my... Honest opinion, the cultural revolution was the legalization of contraception. The sexual revolution followed from that, abortion followed from that, and homosexual rights is only the logical consequence of the use of the contraceptive. Okay? 
Uh, Hesburgh uh, funded these conferences during uh, the spring of 65. Griswold versus Connecticut came down. Uh, during the summer, Hesburgh took John D. Rockefeller to the Pope, meet with the Pope. I kid you not. This is, as a literary a student of literature, I, this is one of the great moments of American literature. If only Henry James were around to talk about it. But anyway, John D. Rockefeller gets ushered into a private audience with the Pope, at which he volunteers to write the, perp, the Pope's birth control encyclical for him. Humane Vitae. He was going to write Humane Vitae for him. I can imagine what's going through the Pope's mind at this point. Actually, I can't imagine that. Henry James might, but I can't. The only thing that comes to my mind is him looking at Mr. Rockefeller and saying, if you're so damn rich, why aren't you smart? <laughs> or something like that. Anyway, the Pope did not uh, uh, go along with it. Humane Vitae, uh, in the fall of, uh, in the spring of 67, there was the Curran battle at Catholic U. Curran was given tenure. The bishops backed down. At that point, Hesburgh saw his opportunity and broke away from the Catholic Church with the Land O'Lake Statement. In 68, Humane uh, Vitae came out and the rebellion was out in the open. So basically what happened is that the Catholic universities declared independence, or another way of saying is that it was stolen. The Catholic universities were stolen from the Catholic Church over the summer of 1967. When I mentioned this to Cardinal Kroll, who was the, I did his biography, when he was the, the man writing the Code of Canon Law, who was involved in the, the new Code of Canon Law, which came out in 1983. I asked him, what do, you, what, did you, what do you think of the Land O'Lake Statement? He said to me, that was alienation of church property. In other words, these places were stolen from the Catholic Church. They are still in a, in a position of alienation. There is a document now called Ex Corde Ecclesiae that the Vatican has proposed, but the... It, I don't know. It's a, there's an impasse. Canon 812 says the church will certify whether these theologians have the right to teach theology. Hesburgh and all the other uh, presidents saying we're not going to accept it. So there's an impasse right now. So to answer your question shortly, the, church, the institutions have been stolen from the Catholic Church. They are in a, a, a position of alienation right now. I just wanted to mention, I'm sure this isn't uh, news to Dr. Jones, but the uh, conservative student paper at Notre Dame just last spring published a lot of the original documentation that uh, indicates uh, the extent of Father Hesburgh's involvement with the Rockefellers, and uh, particularly with one uh, commission that was pushing birth control. Yeah, that was the deal. Yes, sir. You talked in your speech about the moral law and truth and how they should be taught in uh, universities and schools. But my question is, whose truth and moral law ought to be taught? Uh, the Hindu tradition glorifies sexuality, glorifies a sexual act. You get personal freedom, you get spiritual enlightenment through the sexual act, whereas the Catholic faith, or faith excuse me, uh, it's taboo to even think of sexuality uh, with the exception. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, okay, it, it's, it's against I'm their I'm a Catholic. I thought of sexuality every now and then. I have five kids to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> well, for the, for the purpose... The thought is father to the act, they say. <laughs> You're talking um, to a practicing heterosexual here, friend. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of the purposes, how my understanding of the Catholic faith, now I'm not Catholic, so I can't... I'm, I'm not an expert on it, but it's uh, against the moral law to um, have sexual acts outside of the purposes of uh, procreating and outside, outside of the missionary. 
the sexual, to give you the teaching in a nutshell, sexual activity has to take place within marriage and open to life. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, but that is significantly different, uh, nevertheless, from, say, the Hindu position. Well, what, a, um, let's, let's not, what about the Aztec position? Well, I, I'm not exactly sure about what the Aztec laws, but what makes well, your you're, moral law... You're, there is, there are, what I'm trying to say here is that the human mind can know the truth. And it can know the truth about something as important as human sexuality. And as a matter of fact, the human mind did know the truth, and the reason that there is the confusion that we have now is because it turned its back on the truth. Well, the Hindus believe that they know the truth as well. What makes your truth more valuable, more important It's not than my truth. truth. Well, now, wait a minute. You're saying, you're saying that the human mind cannot know the truth. I'm saying that it can know the truth. Well, what I'm saying you're, is that You're saying, in effect, is if someone says that X is so, and then someone says Y is so that the human being has to throw up his hands and say, we can't know. I'm saying that your society can develop a truth for itself. Your society can develop its own... No, no, wait a minute. No, wait. You see, every, every formulation you make is a subtle distortion of what I'm trying to say here. I'm saying that, the, the, that people, that men can know the truth. And, that the and there is an absolute truth globally around the, well, when you say, the human species. When, when you say absolute and truth... You're saying the same thing, aren't you? I mean, if it's true, it's true, isn't it? So, so uh, sexual, sexual truth is the same kind of truth as 2 plus 2 equals 4. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, Michael? I mean, in, a sense, in the sense that the mind can know sexual truth, the truths about human sexuality, and the mind can know the truths about mathematics. They are different. They are different realms of existence, but the mind can know the truth in both areas. Michael, could you, that, that question begs the question of, uh, of superiority of traditions also, and, and, and the tradition of our culture. We didn't grow up in a, our, our found, nation's founding was not built on Hinduism. Let me, let, me, let me give, there's an example that I thought of when I was talking about Western culture. Uh, portrait painting did not flourish among the Aztecs. Portrait painting did not flourish among the Aztecs. As a matter of fact, portrait painting only flourished in one place, in one tradition, as far as I know. I mean, this, this, this realism that uh, culminates in somebody like Angre or somebody like that, that Picasso hated, by the way. Now, do you think it's coincidence? I don't think it's coincidence. I think if you have a culture where we can take, all right, everybody in the room, outside, in front of the pyramid, we're going to cut your hearts out in 15 minutes, okay? If you've got a culture like that, why should you waste the time trying to figure out how to paint someone's face? In other words, this culture does not value the human being in the same way that the Western culture based on Christianity and the Jewish moral law and Greek philosophy did. It's that simple. Okay. Thank you. My name is Justin Bergner. I'm a student at Yale University. And here's what I'd like to address. There are genetics and then there are environmental influences. And moral law is based on understanding of human nature. You can't craft a moral law which tries to make human beings something which their genetics won't allow them to be. And so here's what I, I'm asking you. What do you do if science in the next 10 years shows that there's a significant predisposition towards homosexuality, 
What do you do when you encounter that evidence? Because you can only do so much to change human nature. And even if there is some environmental influence and some genetic influence, how, what do you say? What do, what do I do if, uh, if science within the next 10 years shows that uh, among Germans and Irish there's a significant proclivity to alcoholism? What do I do? Now, I, I, I say this because I'm speaking, I'm a little bit personally involved here. I happen to be half German and half Irish. You try and control it as best you can. Okay. But you... There seems... Uh, the, as the, best the, you can. I, I, bring, I bring this up because the, the homosexual thing is so uh, uh, explosive. Uh, I, I once was on a plane with a lady who was a, an Episcopalian priestess who told me within the first five minutes of her conversation that she was an alcoholic and that she... Uh, counseled homosexuals. I said, well, ah, that's interesting. Do you tell the homosexuals not to, to abstain from sodomy? Well, no. Well, I said, well, what do you learn in AA? Don't, don't the people in AA say not to take a drink? Well, that's different. Okay? That's the ultimate end of discourse. That's different. I'm saying that we, we don't need science to come and tell us that the human beings have proclivities to, to self-destructive behavior. We can read literature, and we know that already, okay? But we need people to resist these proclivities, even if they are there, there is some type of genetic precondition, which I, having read uh, Dr. Satinover's book, I, I just think that's, uh, that's all bogus. If you want my understanding of it, the best way to let yourself off the hook as a practicing homosexual is to say, nature made me this way and there's nothing I can do about it. I think that's the real reading. But, yeah, I'm, in, I'm into interpretation. I you know? agree with you there, but um, don't you think you might be going too far in setting up necessary conditions for a moral law? I mean, is it really necessary? Well, either it is or it isn't. Because moral law is based on human nature. Moral law is based on human nature. No, I think that human nature, part of human nature is the moral law. The moral law is constitutive of human nature, but it's not based on it. No, I wouldn't say that. Thanks. Okay. Yes, sir. Hi. Um, something that was sort of touched on, but it's still very confusing to me, is the issue of the truth. I mean, who, the truth can be a very powerful thing to say that you have and a very easy thing to say that you have. Anyone can say that they have the truth and can, and can propagate an entire attitude towards believing that truth and not accepting people who go against that truth. And, I mean, do you, do you believe that you have any truths at this point? I mean, are you really... You know, I have another anecdote here from Saint, my days at St. Mary's when I talked about the Ten Commandments and the, my, one of my colleagues said, well, that's your truth, referring to the Ten Commandments. And a minute I started thinking, since I never have any money, I immediately started thinking of money. I thought, what I'd like to do, since they're my Ten Commandments, <laughs> I would like to have a nickel every time someone follows them and I'd like to have a dime every time someone breaks them. Since they're my... No, what I'm trying to say here is, this is not my truth, okay? I can't... It, by the very fact that it is the truth means that well, it is not the possession of one person. Then what makes it the truth? What makes it the truth? Uh, adequatio rei et intellectum. 
Okay? That's what makes it the truth. Can you translate that, please? Yeah, the correspondence between thing and reality. That's what makes something the truth. And that's not at all open to interpretation. Do, does the mind... Do, did I say that there is no effort involved in no. understanding the truth? No, you did not. Did say I that. say that the human mind was infallible? That, it's, that you could just roll out of bed in the morning and understand the truth like a god, like an angel? Did I say that? No. no. Okay. Then how do we know whether we have a truth or whether we have some sort of interpretation that we have not yet realized the truth yet? For all we know, it would seem we don't have any how do we know? How do, how do you know I'm here? How do, how do you know that you're not hallucinating right now? But is that, is that truth how you're raised? Yeah, let, me, let me give you, I, I, have to keep, I have to approach this by indirection. Uh, De Christopher Derrick wrote a book called Escape from Skepticism. He's an English writer. He was in the middle of a, two, two young students came to him. He was in the middle of this heated discussion. In the discussion, these two young students were saying, nothing is certain. You can't know anything for certain. I mean, this is, this is the ultimate truth of the... They didn't say it that way, of course, which would contradict what they said. Nothing is certain in this life, and until you get that straight, you don't know anything. And then at one point, the guy looked at his watch and said, Oh, my God, it's quarter of three. If we don't leave now, we'll miss the train. <laughs> now, what I'm saying here is that this skepticism is, is ridiculous, it's self-refuting, and it only exists in certain rarefied atmospheres like graduate seminars <laughs> at universities. Every and even there, even there, the people say, oh my God, it's four o'clock, the seminar's over. Well, we'll see you tomorrow. Make sure you do your assignment and no cheating and, be and remember, above all, nothing is certain. See you tomorrow. So, moral truths, truths about religion, Etc. how people should act are just as certain as it's four o'clock, the train's going to leak. There is a truth about human sexuality. There is a truth. It. There is a truth about human sexuality and it is apprehendable by the human mind just as two plus two equals four is apprehendable by the human mind. The fact that everyone doesn't know it does not mean that it is not there. Just as there, I have a, a child, I have a granddaughter who does not know that two plus two equals four. Okay, that does not mean that's that's not true. Okay, thanks. Next, I wanted to give you a practical example, which you should feel free to use if you find it helpful uh, on the multicultural uh, nature of truth. When the British took over India, they suppressed the Hindu practice of sati of uh, where the, a wife would have to immolate herself on her husband's funeral pyre. When the Indians threw the British out of India, they did not institute, reinstitute their ancient practice of sati. And I've never yet seen anybody, feminist or otherwise, argue that we ought to reinstitute it because it's, a, it's an Indian yeah. value. What about clitorectomy? Let's get the feminist behind clit Let's get the multiculturalist behind clitorectomy and foot binding. Yes, sir. <laughs> You asked uh, just a little while ago, how do we know that you're here? The, we don't, whether we know we, whether or not you're here is completely irrelevant. We accept that you're here. Just as cultures 
accept certain things that for that culture, it may be true, it may not be true, but let's say it's true for the purposes of our culture, for the purposes of making life easier. However... It would be easier to accept that I wasn't here, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's the conclusion maybe for Harry's college drew 15 years ago. <laughs> All right, not go. nearly as fun, however. <laughs> okay. All right. The gentleman who just spoke a little while ago and just was questioning you a little while ago brought up a very good point. And now that I mention it, I just can't think of what it was. <laughs> um, no, it was on people believe that they know certain things is the truth. And people believe that they don't know the truth sometimes. My question for you here is that how do we know that the truth that we believe or what we believe to be the truth is the same as, or which is different than what somebody else believes, that they know the truth, they believe that they know the absolute truth, but they're two different things. How do we know that we are correct in this, or that you specifically are correct in which the truth that you believe is the true truth, which is different than the truth that they, someone else believes? I mean, why is, the is there disagreement? Truth? That's what you're saying. This reminds me of a story about uh, uh, de deconstructionist. Uh, you know what you get when you cross a deconstructionist and a mafioso? You get someone who makes you a proposition you can't understand. <laughs> now, this deconstructionist was speaking at a convention. This, actually, I, I could give you a citation from a book. And he said, he gave his presentation in which the gist of it was that all language is completely self-defeating and can't convey any information. Then the man, st uh, man in the audience stood up and asked a question, and then the guy got back and he said, no, you misunderstood completely what I said here. <laughs> you see, I mean, if, if it's the truth, you know, it, the truth manifests itself. I'm not saying that everybody, that there will be, that this will see, their disagreements will cease. But there are, I mean, as I said with the watch, you know, oh my God, it's three o'clock. There are, certain, there are certain things that people acknowledge as true and they act upon them. If you didn't acknowledge anything as true, you would not act. The fact that people act means that there is a, an acknowledgement of things that are true. We acknowledge these things because they're convenient. Albert Einstein Why are they proved... convenient? This reminds me of a book by uh, B.F. Skinner, you know, the, the conditioning guy. Why do the people in this primitive tribe in Bongo Bongo, why do they row this way? Okay, well, he says, because they're conditioned to row this way. Right? End of discussion. Well, wait a minute. Why are they conditioned to row this way? Suddenly you see this whole thing. Uh, suddenly a whole era opens up. And the only way you can answer these things, when metaph metaphysics talks about transcendentals, okay, that means the buck stops here. The only way you can answer these questions in an ultimate fashion is by saying it's the true and it's the good. If you've well, ever we're going to have to cut things short. We're already in our lunchtime. So uh, thank you to Dr. E. Michael Jones for this enlightening discussion. Thank you very much.
In a few moments, a look at tonight's C-SPAN lineup. But first, the travels of one of the C-SPAN school buses. Today we're in Mount Vernon, Illinois. We're in the 5th Judicial District. Mount Vernon and the 5th Judicial District are located in the southern part of Illinois. We cover roughly the southern third of the, of the state of Illinois and serve 37 counties. The 5th District Appellate Court is an intermediate court of review. Our purpose is to entertain appeals from cases that proceed from trial court. And after we have adjudicated a case, parties may appeal by permission to the Illinois Supreme Court, which is uh, headquartered in Springfield, Illinois. Well, we believe that we have a very special link to Abraham Lincoln. Historically, Abraham Lincoln had a very busy practice. He was engaged in thousands of cases at the circuit court level. Historians suggest he had as many as 400 appeals at all levels of the state and federal court systems in existence at that time. During the course of his appellate work, Abraham Lincoln actually argued a case in this very courtroom in Mount Vernon, Illinois, at a time when this court was part of the first grand division of the Illinois Supreme Court. The case that Abraham Lincoln uh, argued before the court concerned property tax issues relating to the Illinois Central Railroad. Uh, there was a, a tax levy that the county of McLean attempted to impose against the railroad, and it was uh, trying to uh, defeat that levy on the basis that it was organized and operating under a charter with the state of Illinois, and that levies by individual counties would impede and restrict its progress and therefore expansion during that era. That case uh, resulted in a victory for Abraham Lincoln and the Illinois uh, Central Railroad. Well, we know that as a lawyer, he had a rather extensive practice. Uh, historians suggest that... C-SPAN, a public service created by America's cable television companies. Here's a look at our lineup. Just ahead, an address by acting Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. In 15 minutes, remarks by British Secretary of State Sir Patrick Mayhew on events in Northern Ireland. Later, a hearing on child labor. 
an address by acting Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee. Today, Governor Jim Guy Tucker stepped aside, but refused to resign, invoking a clause in the state constitution that will make Lieutenant Governor Huckabee acting governor, allowing him to regain the office if his Whitewater convictions are overturned. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I fully expected to address you as the 44th governor of the state of Arkansas. For nearly seven weeks, all of us have anticipated that on or before July the 15th, our governor would follow through with the promise that he made to the people of our state in late May when a jury of Arkansas citizens handed down guilty verdicts on two felony counts. The people of Arkansas understood that the governor was acting in the best interest of the people of the state when he chose to step down rather than to stay on beyond the period of time which he said would be for an orderly transition. Tonight I come here with an extraordinary sense of probably the same shock that you have. I had wished tonight, in fact, had stayed up late over the past several evenings, preparing what was going to be a carefully crafted speech. Needless to say, 